You are now listening to the April 7th broadcast of Unity in Christ. Today's program includes Christianese 101, The Sex Spiral, and Grace Upon Grace. We will listen to a praise song and begin our program with Christianese 101.
Hello everyone, this is Grace and I am your new host for the Christianese 101 program series. As you read the Bible, there are many instances where the phrase anointing is used as well as people that were anointed. When I first heard of anointing, I imagined someone filling up a bucket with oil and pouring it onto someone else's head. That made me wonder why someone would pour that smelly and slimy liquid on someone or choose to get it poured onto themselves. So today, we will be learning about anointing and why it was done to certain people. In order to understand anointing, we must first understand the act of anointing. The Hebrew word for anointing is maska, meaning smearing, but in many cases, it was actually poured. There are many reasons for an anointment. The first was for healing. The act of oil smearing helped to relieve pain as well as speed up the healing process. In Isaiah 1.16 and Ezekiel 16.9, both have instances where anointing was used to heal. Additionally, Mark 6.13 shows when Jesus' disciples anointed sick people and healed them. And in James 5.14, it shows that we are to pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. Therefore, someone could be anointed for healing, especially in the name of the Lord. Anointing can also be used in a more cosmetic setting. Psalms 104.15 says, And wine which makes man's heart glad, so that he may make his face glisten with oil and food which sustains man's heart. Another example for an anointing, as you all may know, is a step in preparing a body for a funeral. Mark 14.8 states, She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for the funeral. However, the most important instance when an anointing is needed is this. It is to glorify and consecrate. Exodus chapter 30 speaks of the building of God's temple, as well as how God wants His various items to be anointed. Verses 20 to 29 shows how to make this oil, as well as where to anoint it in detail. Verse 29 states, You shall also consecrate them, that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them shall be holy. This shows that the most important use is to consecrate. Because of this, God said only three kinds of people were allowed to anoint in the Old Testament. Do you know who they are? The first is the king who rules over the people for God. Second is the prophets who speak to the people for God. And lastly, third, is the priest who ministers and offers sacrifices to God for the people. In order for these people to properly anoint others, they themselves have to be anointed. At the beginning of today's program, we spoke about how the Hebrew word maska meant anointing. Then what do we call those who have been anointed? That's right, they are called Messiah. Our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ is the only person who is anointed as king, a prophet and a priest. Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords who has the authority and the power of God. 
He also speaks God's words to us. So he is a prophet, and through Jesus' death and resurrection, he became designated by God as a high priest. Hebrews 5.10 He is the ultimate and true priest, prophet, and king. And one more thing before we end our program today. The Hebrew word Messiah, translated into the New Testament Greek, is Christos. The reason we call Jesus Christ is because he is exactly that, the anointed Messiah of the Old Testament. Back then, the name Jesus was a very common name. But we know that there is only one Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah. Well, that's all for today. I look forward to meeting with you again next week for our program series, Christianese 101.
blessed Redeemer, Emmanuel. Coming up next is a podcast series, The Sex Spiral, led by Pastor Dustin Daniels of Purity Ministry from Phoenix, Arizona. The program addresses sex with biblical grace and truth, without the shock value, and is a resource for anyone looking for biblical answers to pornography, singleness, marriage, family, and children. This program may contain mature language and subject matter. Welcome to God, Sex, and You, a daily discipleship podcast on healthy sexuality. Here's your host, Purity Pastor, Dustin Daniels. We learned how we rationalize, how we talk ourselves into committing the sin of looking at pornography. Well, this podcast is part two of two, on rationalization. And this teaching is from the series called The Sex Spiral, Forgiven and Free from Pornography. This podcast series is is just a sample of the upcoming book with the same name that's going to be released later this summer. In today's lesson, we're going to discuss eight more ways to rationalize our porn use. This is a way to talk ourselves into the sin. Now, there's one thing to note here. If you're talking yourself into the sin, this is actually a good thing. This means that the Holy Spirit is telling you not to do this. In essence, you're you're choosing to quench the Holy Spirit. Now, that's the bad news. The good news is that you actually have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, convicting you. And this means that you have real hope for change. If you are not fighting this battle, this means that there's a problem there from a spiritual perspective. And that's where we want to work out our faith with fear and trembling and ask the Lord, why am I not being convicted right now? Why is it that I can just do this and my conscience is not bothering me? Ultimately, this means that we have a choice though. 1 John 4, 4 says, he that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. It's during this time to where we learn to cooperate with God, to listen to him, to choose to do something that you've never done before. And this is how we exit the sex spiral, by praying, by confessing, and by fleeing. So in this podcast, you're going to learn eight more rationalizations that we tend to tell ourselves. For example, 
you know, once I'm married, once I'm married, I'll, I'll stop looking at pornography. What about, have you ever told yourself, well, it's Dustin, it's, it's safer than real sex. What about it's unhealthy not to masturbate? Have you found yourself telling yourselves those things to commit the sin? Well, we're going to discuss them right now. So let's get started with today's lesson. It's titled, Eight Rationalizations I Give Myself to Look at Porn. What about number five there? My spouse said no, and I have sexual needs. I would say, well, not only do we have sexual needs, but so does your spouse. I mean, what's the reason she's saying no? Does she need to talk to you at a deeper level? Yeah, you got to love them from a spiritual and emotional perspective. And that's one of the biggest lies of pornography is that, you know, women can be ready for sex just like a man can. And it is a lie because it's, we've pornified the whole country into thinking that women want to have sex like men. And that's not true at all. Amy told me one time, you're like a microwave and I'm more like a crock pot. You better put that baby on simmer all day long for about 12 hours. You know what that means? I mean, it's about a conversation at that point. Something that we don't want to do, right? We just think it's all based on physical needs, and it's, it's not. What about, it's okay to think about my spouse. It's okay if I think about my spouse. Meaning masturbation and fantasy. I'm not thinking about anybody else. I'm just thinking about... Have you guys ever said that? Yeah, my question is, have you asked her if it's okay to turn her into a sex object? And even if she says yes, because I hear like a lot of guys that travel, they'll say, you know, I've talked to my spouse about this and that, you know, this is okay. And that's you guys' deal. I would say, though, even if she says yes, the sin itself comes from not being together to experience that relationship physically spiritually and emotionally together because you're still having sex with yourself and God never intended that. Um, Here's the other problem with that is that when we fantasize about our spouse, we tend to fantasize about things that we would never do with her in person. They tend to be a little bit more radical. So you're still turning her into some type of sex toy. Does that make sense? That's why it's so important that we learn self-discipline, even if we're traveling, to be able to depend on the Lord, learn self-discipline, and then when you come home, experience that together. What about you single guys? Once I'm married, I'll stop. Once I'm married, I'll, I'll stop. I'll stop looking at pornography and, and masturbating. I'll stop going to strip clubs. I'll stop doing all that. I hear that all, this all the time from single guys. And the one thing I love to tell them is that marriage actually tends to escalate pornography use and masturbation. And they do this. What? And the reason is if we don't, as single guys, if we don't have the self-control to do this when we're single, and then you get married and you have these expectations that... You can have sex anytime that you want, and then all of a sudden she's got a headache or she doesn't feel good. Well, you've just been turned down and rejected. So then all of a sudden we didn't have the self-control there, so now we're going to default back to 
what we've always done. And then you throw the pressures of finances and kids on top of that, right? It's all about self-control from the very, very start. What about it's unhealthy not to masturbate? I love when people tell me this. They've put themselves through medical school to tell me that it's unhealthy to masturbate. Have you guys heard that? Have you told yourself that? Sure is quiet in here tonight. You guys aren't really talking. I thought I'd have more conversation than this. A lot of people think, oh, well, I'm going to explode. So, but the re- here's the reality, though. Masturbation uh, can be associated with symptoms of depression, prostate abnormalities, excessive masturbation while watching pornography causes porn-induced erectile dysfunction. And at the end of the day, God gave us something to so that there is a natural way for us to relieve itself, and that is just through nocturnal emissions, which is a wet dream. So, you will not explode. I'm living proof. I haven't exploded yet. I'll watch porn, but I won't masturbate. Number one, what's the point? And number two, yes, you will. You're just, all you're doing at that point is you're just resisting. You're just putting the... Seven, eight, you're the actual acting out off. So you're actually resisting at a different level. What about I'll masturbate but won't watch porn? I've got an overly sensitive sex drive. If I had a dime for every time I heard that, no, you just have a sinful propensity to lust. That's what it is. And really, at the end of the day, once again, this gives you the opportunity to learn self-control. It's safer than real sex, unless it's your spouse. See, that's the beauty of of God's, the way he designed marriage and sex, is if two people are committed to one another and you only have sex with one another, there's no way that you can ever get a STD. Think about this. All it takes is one generation of young people to abstain from sex and STDs will be obliterated. So if you're having sex with your, your, I mean, there's just, there's no way. Problem is sin. Once again, it's this idea that we're going to bring something else into this or we're going to masturbate and and have self-sex. And then 13, God will forgive me. Romans 6, Galatians 5. That's a pretty weighty statement, isn't it? Taking the, the gift of grace that God is, or salvation, actually the gift of salvation and using that against itself so you can pursue the sin itself. And if we get into a habit specifically with that one, it's, it'd be a real good idea to check ourselves, right? To make sure that we're, we're, we're coming before the, the throne of Almighty God in a way to where, well, wait a second, I, I better work out my salvation with fear and trembling here. Because right now I'm just, I'm not scared. I just, I keep doing that. Yeah. Yeah, it's like I, I enjoy the feeling that it brings. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Maybe not necessarily like the feeling I get from like the pleasure of like looking at it and getting away or something like that, but the physical pleasure of having an orgasm. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's the key word is the the play. That's that's why we do all of this. It's the it's from the the chase itself to whatever we're doing, but ultimately it's the pleasure that this whole thing brings. It's not just in seven and eight here where we act out. 
but it's this whole thing. We get something from it. At the very end, there's a lot of pleasure in it for a moment, but it's the whole chase that we're addicted to, so to speak. There's a whole routine to what we're doing, right? There's a a rebellious side of me that at the end of the day, you're not going to tell me what to do. I'm going to go do it. Period. The end. Right? That's the depth of sin that we're talking about. So you've heard eight more rationalizations of how and why I give myself permission to sin. Did you see yourself in, in some of those? Can you think of some others? Well, if you can, I would love to hear them. Uh, seriously, jump on DustinDanielsRadio.com. Send me an email on those rationalizations that you give yourself, and we'll talk about them on the podcast. Now, please know that you can exit the sex spiral right here. You can exit your habit right here by praying the moment you start talking yourself into committing the sin. You can call a trusted friend and confess this thought and this desire that's going through your mind right now. Or you can flee this trigger and remove yourself from the place that's tempting you. You can do one of those things. You can do all of those things in any type of combination. See, it's it's when you break the isolation and the silence of your sin by reaching out through confession and community that the sin no longer has any power over you. You don't always have to do what you've always done. There's freedom. There's a lot of freedom in your choice to say no. You know, I was talking to someone the other day and he called his phone evil. And I asked him why. He, he said that, well, it's, it's because I watch porn on it. Um, I asked him, I said, you know, is it your phone that's evil or is it your desires that are evil? And he finally admitted, I guess it's my desires. And see, that, that's a good revelation because our phones are agnostic. They can be used for good or evil or both, really, depending on the situation. My phone is one of the most powerful tools for doing good and keeping me clean and pure. You know, I listen to a couple different podcasts every single day that help me keep my eyes fixed on Jesus. And I surf the web with with no problems. And you know what? I've got nothing to hide. And the reason for that is because I've got covenant eyes installed on it. So let me encourage you, if you don't have a filter on your your devices, your phone, your laptop, your tablet, go to covenanteyes.com today. And when you sign up, you're also supporting this podcast and the ministry. So thank you so much for listening to God, Sex, and You. I'm your host, Dustin Daniels. And if you're in Phoenix, I want to invite you to our weekly community group. I'd love to meet you uh, face-to-face. It's for men and women, husbands and wives, single, divorced, everybody is welcome. You're invited to listen to God with us every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at Northern Hills Community Church. You can follow me on Twitter at Purity Pastor, rate the show on iTunes, and you can email me your questions at DustinDanielsRadio.com. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 4.20, the kingdom of God isn't just a lot of talk, it's living in God's power. And that power is in the very name, it's in the shed blood of Jesus Christ.
Soul Ministries is now starting a new Japanese program and is able to spread the gospel in Japanese. If you know anyone that is fluent in Japanese, please let them know of this program. We hope that they will be able to hear the gospel of Jesus through our CDs. If you are interested, please contact us at our office. Our office number is 602-866-8999. And our email address is heartandsoul.org at gmail.com. Thank you. Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Joshua Vincent of Trinity Bible Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is A Love Song Gone Very Wrong, Part 1, based on Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 30. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Joshua. Stands as one of the greatest minds that this nation has ever produced. He wrote so much more than this sermon, but it is what he is mostly known about and caricatured as. In fact, he wrote much on God being most glorified in us when we are most satisfied or pleased in him, and yet you don't hear those things about this man. See, unfortunately, our post-Christian culture has actually reduced Edwards and his sermon to a caricature of an angry preacher preaching about an angry God bringing fire and brimstone almost with a twinkle in his eye, as though it almost brings Edwards satisfaction and joy to preach these things that he preached to that congregation. But just to give you a taste of Edwards' sermon, this is what he says. He says in it, the bow of God's wrath is bent. We just read about a bent bow, didn't we? And it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. I don't think I've ever preached that boldly. Now that's how he preached and there was chains that was brought. See, many people, Christian and non-Christian alike, hate the sound of God being angry and wrathful towards sinners, much less his people Israel. Now why? I believe one reason is because God is a God of love, if anything, especially in our culture. And that definition of love is the definition that we breathe into it, not the definition of love that we necessarily see in the Bible. I mean, could there be any just reason for a loving God to be angry? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Not just, is it okay for God to be angry? Can you imagine a situation in which it's okay for God, who is a God of love, to be angry? Maybe you can't this morning. 
But this morning, we're back in our Isaiah series, looking at Jesus, who is king, servant, and also victorious conqueror. And we're concluding Isaiah's introduction to this book this morning with a love song gone very wrong about the beloved's vineyard. Uh, You might have noticed that. Now, you'll remember that Isaiah's intro has three sections. Chapter 1 was the first section. Uh, There we saw that Isaiah spoke of a vineyard in verse 1-8, where the remnant of the Lord preserves as the vineyard. Then you'll remember in Isaiah 3-12-4-1, he speaks of that vineyard again. It was despoiled. And then God says that he's going to actually judge those who have despoiled his vineyard. But the flashes of light and hope that we have seen up to this point seem to vanish where God, here in Isaiah 5, even pronounces himself in his own relentless judgment on the men of Judah, his pleasant plant. And this morning what we're going to see is this. You can write this down if you're taking notes. Our loving God's justified anger and wrath will be satisfied. Now let's just pray quickly as we go into this text, because I'm going to need some help. Let's pray together. Father, this morning as we come before you, we are going to be thinking about your wrath and your anger and your justice. And Father, um, none of us, none of us are worthy to speak these things except that you have called us to in Christ. And so, Father, as we come to your word this morning, we ask that you would be exalted in your justice. Lord, that you would be exalted in all of your radiant beauty and glory and your justice. Do this for the glory of your name we do ask. Amen. So the first thing that we're going to see is in verses 1 to 7. We see this this story in 1 to 7, this song that we are told. Now, what we're going to see here is that God actually in this story destroys his vineyard because his good care resulted in bad fruit. He destroys his vineyard because his good care resulted in bad fruit. Now, the irony is really thick. You probably even caught it without anybody calling your attention to it as it was being read. But here Isaiah begins with what sounds like a love song, like Song of Solomon, to my beloved and his vineyard. But you'll remember, you'll notice that it actually quickly shifts into a picture of judgment. And this, friends, is a love song going very wrong. Just look at verses 1 to 7 again as we look at those verses and read them. Here's what he says. He says in chapter 5 verses 1 to 7, let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it will be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall, shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they have no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Now here, you'll notice first that God has lavished his grace on his people. You cannot miss the character of God that's on display in this text. 
But as you read, you'll notice that he is showing tender, loving, intentional affection for his vineyard. He cared for them in every way that a good vine dresser could. He cleared the stones. He planted choice vines and even built a double wall around them because they were his creation from beginning to end. He would have glory brought about through his garden. The glory of the gardener would be displayed in the garden that he has created with his very own hands. And God provided them with every good thing. And he protected them from every bad thing. That's why God asks, what more could he have done for his vineyard in verse 4? Now, not only did God protect and provide for them, take note that he also looked expectantly for pleasure in the sweet fruit they would produce. He was anticipating that sweet fruit was to come. In fact, verse 7, there he calls Judah his pleasant planting. They were his pleasant plant, and he, he longed to see what would happen with Judah and what they would produce. And he even built, notice, a watchtower to dwell in the garden and dug a wine vat. Now why? Because God waited expectantly for the sweet fruit of his labors. And the people that he called and created to image him to the nations, he was looking for what they would do. But notice, God says, I looked for it to yield grapes twice in verses 2 and 4. He was looking and watching this garden. It's not as though he built the garden and then walked away and didn't know what was going to happen to it. He was sitting there watching to see what would happen. And then notice also this, that not only did he lavish grace on his people, God looked for good fruit. But what did he find when he was looking for this good fruit in verses 2 and 4? Well, you'll notice he looked for good fruit, but both times he found wild grapes. Wild grapes. Now, when you hear wild grapes, you might be thinking to yourself, that doesn't sound so bad. Especially if you'd been with my family this summer when we were in uh, Maine on Cadillac Mountain and we found wild blueberries, right? They were excellent. We loved finding those wild berries. They seemed very good to us. We tasted them. They were actually quite tasty. God did a good thing in those wild grapes, those wild berries on the mountain. But that's not exactly what's being described here. In fact, the language behind these wild grapes that are mentioned here actually in the Hebrew speaks of it with a word that also means stinky or worthless. I really wish that the Hebrew, the the ESV, would have put stinky grapes here. I think that would be better. I like stinky grapes. Not to eat, but it explains it better, doesn't it? And so here, God comes to his garden and he's looking for sweet, tasty grapes, but he finds stinky grapes. This is not good fruit that he worked towards. It is bad fruit. And bad fruit says something about the gardener. See, God's so angry about working and looking for good fruit and finding bad fruit. He's so angry that he actually removes, notice, his protection from external enemy. He removes that double wall. His pruning is removed for sanctification and his provision for the blessings of rain that are so necessary to grow are gone. He gives his garden over to briars and thorns, an image that you can't miss just inlaid with direction angles, arrows going back to Genesis 3.18 where man sinned against God and God cursed the ground with thorns to, to work against him as he worked. Here we see that the garden is cursed. But Also, notice what good fruit it was that God was looking for and what bad fruit he found. 
Because he's not just talking about stinky grapes. He's actually talking about bad spiritual fruit. And I think in our text, he tells us what that bad spiritual fruit is. Uh, Notice in verse 7 what he says. The same word that he used for looked as he was watching to see what fruit would spring up is used here yet again in verse 7 where it says that he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. Uh, He looked for righteousness, behold, an outcry. I like what Alec Moyer says here as he's speaking of this text. He says, Jesus, our justice, is the writing of wrongs. Justice is the writing of wrongs, while bloodshed is the inflicting of wrongs. Righteousness is right living and right relationship with others, while outcry speaks of wrong relationships and the screams of the oppressed. If you're here this morning and you're a non-Christian, we want to welcome you. It's good to have non-Christians here. We love to have non-Christians here that we can enter into a relationship with and for you to be exposed to the gospel. But maybe this morning you're here and you struggle. You struggle to think about an angry God because you are still so angry at the unjust Christians, the Christians that do not practice justice all around you. And maybe you're even thinking specifically of some Christians who have taken advantage of you or others and did not live justly. And that makes sense. I can get why that would cause some cognitive dissonance in you. Like, how, how can this be what God is like if this is His people? See, God's people should image Him as the garden was meant to give glory to the gardener. They should strive to live just and righteous lives just like their God. But catch this. None of us are as just as God is. None of us profess that. And not all who claim to be the people of God are the people of God. Just a couple of things you need to know. Not all of us are as just as God, and not all of us who not all who claim to be the people of God are the people of God. You know, we you can see this in all kinds of ways. A Halloween illustration might be helpful because we just got done with Halloween. I noticed in my neighborhood, I don't know about you, but I had more uh, Elvis impersonators uh, visiting than usual, right? We always have a lot of Elvis impersonators, never so much as on Halloween. And you'll notice that when you see Elvis impersonators, whether on Halloween or otherwise, that some of those Elvis impersonators are either better or worse at looking like Elvis. Some are either better or worse at sounding like Elvis, But I've never seen an Elvis impersonator that's made me actually doubt the historical person of Elvis, right? I mean, you look at it and you go like, okay, yeah, you're, maybe you're going for the older Elvis or something, right? But you're not, you don't look like Elvis that I would expect. The blue suede shoes are not fooling me, right? And yet at the same time, it never makes me go, I wonder if there's actually an Elvis. So the reality is, is that there's the same truth that we find in Christians. We are merely signs that are pointing to the real Christ. And here's my hope. If you're not a Christian, I hope that you stick around a little bit. And I hope that what you notice in our body with our Christians is that though we are not perfect, at Trinity Bible Church, you will find an imperfect people striving to live just and righteous lives that are authentic and look like Jesus, and ever increasingly so. Give us a chance. We'd love to, to hopefully show you what it looks like to seek to live like our God lives. That's what we're aiming for. But there's another thing here for Christians, something that we need to take note of. Did you take notice that God is actually speaking to Israel and not the nations here? Don't miss this. We have a new and better covenant in Christ, but God still inspects fruit. We see that all over the New Testament. And what that 
that's important to know is, is that our fruit actually speaks to the nature of the tree and whether or not it's alive or not. Now in Matthew 7.19, you'll remember that when Jesus showed up, He said, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Speaking of judgment. And then in John 15.2, Jesus actually differentiates between fruitless and fruitful branches, speaking of those professing Christ as being fruitful. But not only that, He says there are those who don't have true faith. And those are fruitless branches. And here's what he says of those fruitless branches. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes. That it might bear more fruit. And later he says that those that have been cut off and taken away are thrown into the fire. I think he got that straight from Jesus, right? Jesus said it. And so Jesus is here very interested in the fruit that is produced by the people of God. In other words, fruitfulness speaks to whether or not you have true faith and have been justified by God. Now there is a category for thinking that you are a Christian and not being one. Let me just say that again. There is a category of thinking you are a Christian and not being one. And that is not a category that I created. That's a category that we see throughout the New Testament. You can be self-deceived about the nature of who you are. Now, why do I know that this is true? Well, here, Jesus Himself says, no spiritual fruit means no Jesus root. Right? So in other words, if you have no fruit as a Christian and part of the New Covenant then he's saying the problem isn't that you have no fruit as much as what it means, which is that you have not been connected to the root who is Jesus. See, Jesus is the righteous judge. And he says that you have been united with him by faith. You will be fruitful. That's a promise. So either you get cut off or you get cut. Either way, you get cut. And the difference is that God cuts fruitful branches to produce more fruit and more life. Right? I mean, ultimately, we know that the the result of all that we do is a crown of righteousness, which isn't just a shiny golden crown with jewels. It actually points to eternal life that is the gift of what it means to be united to Jesus. So if you're united to Christ, the reward isn't just like better bling, it's eternal life. That's what God offers those who are united to Jesus. They will be fruitful and life-giving from now into eternity. What we know is is that those who are not fruitful do not have the life that is only to be found in the righteous Son of God, Jesus Christ. So are you connected to the Son? What does fruitfulness look like? Sure, you're asking yourself if you have fruit. Uh, If you're one that's prone to like being really nervous about your salvation, some people um, can be prone towards self-doubt in a way that is unhealthy. In other words, you might be a Christian but struggle to believe it, and you need friends and a body to encourage you in that way. So if that's you, just know that you need somebody really good to meet with discipleship regularly so you don't fall off a cliff spiritually. But what does it look like to have spiritual life? Well, we know that John 15 tells us it means abiding in Christ in such a way that it results in some of these things. Okay, this is the fruit. Obedience to God's Word, which is in direct view in what's going on in Isaiah 5? Are you seeking to obey God's Word, which assumes that you are seeking to know and understand God's Word? God's people are a people of the book. They love God's Word. It is bringing life to them. Not only is it obedience to God's Word, you take joy in God above all else. 
That's what it works in. Not only that, you get the fruit of trusting God. Trusting God when things are plenty and when things are wanting. You trust God. In other words, when the pruning comes, you see growth. Uh, It works out in the fruit of loving one another. uh, Or the fruit of sacrificial love that you are showing to one another. Just tell me, here's a good way to know if you have spiritual life or not. I'm not saying you're batting a hundred, but when you know that God is bringing a cutting in your life, when some difficulty or suffering comes, do you see a tendency for you to grow dead in your desires for God and you find yourself separating yourself from the people of God? Do you find yourself running and dead and you don't have spiritual life? Or do you sense God drawing you nearer to Himself? Brothers and sisters, God promises to draw us near to himself in our sufferings as he cuts and prunes us. And not only this, catch me, he says, not only am I going to cut you and it's not going to kill you, it's going to bring spiritual fruit in your life. Sometimes when God cuts you and it hurts worse, God is about to bring about the most fruitful season that you will have in ministry and the way that God's going to use you. That's what God does. The just God brings about fruit as he cuts us.
This concludes today's series of Unity in Christ. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.